We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Freedom Gateway from Foundations of Freedom. The Freedom Gateway is a truly secure and private platform for collaboration and communication. It's uncancelable. While bringing together mission-driven organizations, freedom-loving individuals, activists, and engaged citizens across the globe. Here at the Unity Project, we use the Freedom Gateway to escape big tech censorship, leverage secure communications, and document sharing, and so much more. To learn more about the Freedom Gateway and its myriad of safe and secure features to connect, go to theunityproject.org slash FOF. So excited today to be here with someone that I have been following for quite some time and I had the pleasure of connecting with in a Twitter Spaces event. And this gentleman also happens to know a lot of the, the same folks and, and work with a lot of the same folks that, that we do here at the Unity Project. So I am thrilled to have Jeffrey Tucker, founder of the Brownstone Institute. I'm sure that is not an unfamiliar organization to, I would assume, almost everyone that's listening to this podcast. So with that, welcome, Jeffrey. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and let's talk about what brought you to where you are today in terms of opening up the uh, and founding the Brownstone Institute. The Brownstone was founded in in March of of uh, twenty one, so really two years ago. Uh, we didn't open our doors until about August because there's a lot of building that goes into websites and putting together the scholars lists and raising the money and so on. Uh, so, but we are, we are, uh, now been basically in operation for about, uh, about two years. And it was inspired by my experiences in fighting lockdowns in the early days of, of 2020. Um, it was so frustrating in those days that, uh, that, you know, the lockdowns happened and there was, you know, as far as I could tell, uh, almost no resistance to it. Now, I think in retrospect, that might, might've been a bit of an illusion, uh, the problem is that we all occupied our own opinion spaces. We had our own friends, you know, we had our own circles of influence and we didn't entirely know that that was true, you know, that we were sort of cut off from, from a broader community. And in those days, we didn't know what a community of people opposed to these pandemic controls would look like because we'd never been challenged with this kind of excuse for you know, Leviathan. Uh, we've seen everything else from from war to you know, uh, you know, to terrorism to uh, uh, you know, all, every economic excuse. But we had never really faced anything like a pandemic uh, mm -hmm. threat, at least not in our lifetimes. So uh, as a result, we you know, the intellectuals had not been really tested yet. And we right. discovered uh, some things that we didn't really know, which was that some of our people we thought would be allies were not allies. And then finding the allies was difficult uh, because they came from strange places you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, throughout uh, 2020, we I was just desperately just trying to cobble together something like a, a community of resistance. Mm-hmm. And then that led to the Great Barrington Declaration. And, uh, you know, it was preceded by many efforts, though. I don't, I, I think sometimes people exaggerate the uh, Great Barrington Declaration in terms of being the, the first, you know, sort of mm-hmm. scientific medical resistance efforts. That's certainly not true, but it really did catch fire. Well, well let, let's talk about that, Jeffrey, and, yeah. and talk about, let's try and also um, create the, the chronology of events mm-hmm. so people really understand Um, you say there was some, there was a lot of Herculean efforts prior to the Great Barrington Declaration. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, there's a global COVID summit, you know, uh, which involved many uh, uh, doctors who were mostly upset that (laughs) when you have a pandemic, the the very first thing you should start thinking about is what do you do when people get sick? How do you get to, how do you make them well? But what 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 a lot of these doctors realized was that there was almost no emphasis on this uh, at all. And in fact, I think we know now that the sole goal, and there was great efforts to to make this the only goal of of, of the pandemic mitigation, was to keep people as uninfected as possible until they could get a vaccine. And that was it. Well, at least that's what we were told, right? Yeah. Well, you know, what's incredible about that is that actually it's funny, funny back in February of 2020, uh, Fauci was on record as saying that we didn't need a vaccine to get out of this pandemic. Um, so even well, though I think Fauci's been on, Fauci's been on record saying a, a tremendous amount of conflicting yeah. information. And I think it, it dates, you know, probably for the last 40 years, we could, we could go yeah. back and, and highlight all of his inconsistencies. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, that's right. But it's pretty it's pretty clear that the vaccine became very quickly all that they were really thinking about. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to preserve the immunologically naive population as long as possible, which is one of the purposes of lockdowns and social distancing right. and and then, then the masking and just the general frenzy and hysteria. So, so there were a lot of doctors that were upset because we have a long experience with respiratory pathogens and know how to mm-hmm. deal with them. And the, all those things were either neglected or really over time, they just became uh, just almost impossible even to uh, to find out about them, much less get uh, get the the meds when you, you needed them. I know in my case, uh, uh, I, I guess I finally uh, I finally I finally got COVID in uh, last last January twenty two. Mm-hmm. And there was no chance for getting any of the things that people were prescribing me. I mean, there was just right. there was just no chance. I ended up having to get them through through friends and acquaintances. And uh, what what is your j- just so um, everyone, if if there's someone who's watching this or listening to this and they're unfamiliar with the Brownstone Institute, I first mm-hmm. of all encourage them to follow the Brownstone Institute because it's incredible information that's coming out. And we'll talk about that in a second, but yeah. your background, tell, tell us oh, what your background yeah, yeah. is. So yeah, just, uh, just as my, my, my training is entirely in economics and I've always worked for economics uh, think tanks and my intellectual outlook was generally a sort of uh, pro technology, pro growth libertarian, you know, sort of uh, cheerleader for for technology and and free enterprise and that sort of thing. I mean that uh, I'm not sure I had. Uh, it's it's often difficult to recreate 
your old self, you know, in, mm-hmm. in times of crisis. But I had written at least 10 books mm-hmm. uh, prior to that on various aspects of, of regulations and and uh, uh, economic theory and and practice and you know written a whole book celebrating big tech and you know this kind of thing and i you know i saw myself mostly as a a chronicler of progress mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, like it. So, I would love to i mean this look this conversation could take any number of turns now i'm fascinated to know your take on what's happening as it relates to ai and yeah. this whole biomedical security state that yeah. has been I don't want to say it's been born out of the pandemic. I think it was um, the pandemic was the yeah. the beta test to see how well we would agree <clears throat> as human beings would, would accept it. I think that's right. I mean, I think there were a lot of things. This is a problem once you get your head in dogma, right? So I had this dogma that was basically Victorian liberalism, yay technology, nothing can ever go wrong. The market is too robust. Uh, uh, the more we can digitize everything, uh, the freer we are, uh, that the, the internet revolution has guaranteed uh, an infinite age of of, of gr- growing knowledge, wisdom, and uh, perfection of the world. I mean, I, I think that was basically my view. And so once I adopted that view, I just became kind of kind of blind to to things mm-hmm. that were contrary to that. I remember being in debates in the old days where uh, a man who had started an email s- uh, service and had it shut down, uh, well, let's just say he closed it because uh, the FBI demanded a backdoor to his email right. servers, mm-hmm. and uh, he refused <laughs> to give it. And and uh, they said, well, then you can't operate. Uh, so if you want to continue operating, you have to give us this backdoor. And he said, well, I'm shutting it down. So he, he gave up his entire business model and just yeah. shut the company down just because he wasn't going to violate his users' privacy rights. Right. And we were in a debate together, and his general outlook was that uh, the surveillance state is the biggest threat we face, mm-hmm. and 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 that there was no reason to be optimistic um, about about the growth of all this stuff. And I just wouldn't hear it. I remember I, I was opposed to him, and I said, "No, that's not true. They'll never be able to get away with it. Things are too chaotic in the digital world. We've got too many entrepreneurs working. It's a globalized economy. We're, we've got the tools now to always subvert." any attempts at tyranny. And so I, I think I just kind of blinded myself to the possibility. So you can imagine then what it was like for me in March, 2020, uh, mm-hmm. because it was the last thing I expected. The funny thing about this is that in January, I had written an article warning about the possibility of mass quarantines and lockdowns. Okay. Oh, interesting. Because I had been studying this for 15 years, knowing 15 years prior, knowing that that there was a school of thought that favored lockdowns for pandemic controls, uh, mm-hmm. knowing that they had the quarantine powers to do this um, if they wanted to, knowing of the growth of the administrative state. But uh, in my article, I warned that these powers existed and said this should never happen. But for me in January of 2020, it was a pure abstraction. It was like, it was like a parlor game, Lord, like you know, like a yeah. parlor game, like I had always played. Here's mm-hmm. an intellectual puzzle. Here's how I'm going to show off my amazing ability to navigate, to to f- solve this problem. And that's right. how I wrote about it, because I didn't believe it would actually happen. I was right. just sort of taking issue with the fact that it could happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a real well, difference. 
I, I certainly, I've, I've talked about this quite a bit. You know, I certainly am unbelievably surprised that the American people, you know, a country that that I still almost have somewhat of a romantic vision about, about this, right. you know, born out of out of uh, sovereignty, born out of the concept of of the Constitution, not the concept, but the actual Constitution, born out of uh, the sacrifices of our forefathers, and it's. I'm one of those Americans that's, you know, the Amer the that very much loves the American flag, loves everything patriotic. And I remember at the first part of of the pandemic when we started locking everything down, and I thought, this is absolutely bizarre. Mm -hmm. It was a very strange feeling. Mm -hmm. But I was quite surprised. I thought there's absolutely no way that the American people are going to go along with this. Mm -hmm. Right. And I agree with you. To this day, I am absolutely baffled mm -hmm. how many people willingly, it was like people were tripping over one another to comply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, partially it was because <laughs> it was such a, a shock. I mean, nobody had ever, we'd never seen government like this before under this guise, you know, the idea that right. you had to cancel your convention. And the very first sign that this was unfolding was uh, March 8th. Uh, the very first lockdown started occurring when the conference called South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was mm -hmm. was canceled by the mayor. Yes. It was on his own. And mm -hmm. I remember, and I wrote about it, and I had one of the very few articles that were in, that was in print on the on the topic. And I, I expected that that we'd see, you know, everybody, you know, just say, oh, this is an attack on fundamental freedoms on property rights mm -hmm. on contracts right. uh, represents a kind of a wild disease panic. I mean, this is contrary to all the ideals this country stands mm -hmm. for. I thought that everybody was going to join me in this sort of outrage. And on March 8th, I, I thought, wow, we've got 10 years of lawsuits ahead of us on this one, right. because there's somebody like, I don't know, 250,000 people were coming to this event and it was just canceled yeah. out of nowhere. So uh, I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to say something about this. And to my amazement, I, I, I had one of the very few articles in print on this, on the topic. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand where everybody was. I was screaming about this and I couldn't figure it out. Right. Then of mm -hmm. course it got, it only got worse um, uh, as the, as the days, weeks and, and months uh, went on. The turning point in my own thinking was, of course, March 12th. That was the uh, two days after Trump uh, had, had decided to lock down, uh, one day before the emergency declaration mm -hmm. and the announcement of the basically the coup d'etat by the National Security Council against uh, public health, uh, that they were going to be the rule makers. And on, on that evening was when Trump uh, gave his sort of hostage style uh, video talk in which he announced that there would be no more travel mm -hmm. from from Europe, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And uh, um, that affected me profoundly and personally uh, because of my friends. But beyond that, I did not know that that the president had the power to do something like that. Right. much less that uh, he would ever actually exercise it. So it, it, that was the night when the lights really went out for me. I mean, I just, right. I couldn't believe what was unfolding. Well, and and the other thing that I reflect on quite a bit is the, not only the the fact that we were having all of these rights taken away, the, the constitution, personal sovereignty was being tra trampled on. It was, I keep reflecting and thinking, 
for what? What was this for? Uh, it's not like we were dealing with a virus uh, similar to Ebola, let's mm -hmm. say, or or worse. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a virus that is essentially in the same family as as the common cold. It's a coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I I remember throughout the last three years, oftentimes just kind of reflecting and saying, "What is this all for?" We we lost the ability to ask a question and to critically think. And it really, we saw it in every facet of society, whether it was, was corporate America, whether it was within families, whether it was in your personal friendships, in the medical community, it was astonishing to me that not only were we are, were, was, you know, the, the government closing in on us, but at the same time, it was like society as a whole was paralyzed and not able to critically think or even ask a, a question. Mm -hmm. Was there that was your experience a, as well? A, a sense of that we were under martial law and, and people at that moment did not know what the powers of government were going to be. And it wasn't even clear to me at the time if people were scared of the virus or scared of the response to the virus or some com weird combination of both. But it was a sense that the whole world had gone mad and and it was scary you know i recall coming back from new york on the amtrak on uh, march i think it was in fact on march 12th and being on the train and having a sudden sense that the train could be stopped mm -hmm. and that we could all be rounded up i mean if they discovered the virus from the train i mean look they did this mm -hmm. already on cruise ships right so there's That's no right. no reason why they wouldn't have done it for just an amtrak traveling down the road right mm -hmm. I mean, so at that time uh i was traveling with a with a friend back from new york we were planning to go to a broadway show but they were all canceled so um i said listen they could stop this train and put us all on a cattle car and put us into a quarantine camp and he said that's crazy it's not crazy and i went to uh the uh not the conductor, but, you know, one of the employees of, Am of Amtrak who's, who's sitting there, you know, they put them on these cars and things. And I said, uh, what are the chances that uh, our train could be stopped and we'd all go into a quarantine camp? And he said to me, you know, I don't think that that is likely on this trip. Okay, this right. is not the most comforting answer. Right. I mean, you dissect that one, right? right? On this trip, that means that there's a possibility. And and when you say yeah. this is not likely, you're not answering affirmatively that, in fact, right. so nobody that's off knew. the table. There was a right. lot of fear in the air and a sense that I think we all had a sense that there was this was not just a regular public health uh, thing. Uh, that this was more like 9-11. It was more like a, a major national security thing. Uh, you know, martial law seemed to be descending. So when that train came to a stop at the Hudson Station, I just rushed towards the door and waited for it to open and just like put my feet on the ground. I was never so grateful and just got to my mm -hmm. car. When I zoomed off in my car, um, I I was just, I thought, I I felt that moment that I had somehow dodged a, a much worse fate so the, and and sure. i i just assumed that a lot of people were feeling that way i don't think i was just being paranoid about this it was just, these were very scary times so th that i think contributed a lot to the the mass panic now over time i think things really changed that people thought mm -hmm. well this is our world war three 
this is you know this is this is our great challenge of a generation to do whatever it takes to defeat the virus and that's when uh they recruited uh, you know ma the masses of people you know into the into the grand project so right. uh, but even, it's amazing though you know they recruited all these people at what point you know i continue to, to think this and, and i continue to ask the medical community at what point do does does it fall upon us as citizens and probably even a more heightened responsibility the medical community to stop and ask the question right i don't i don't want to jump too i don't want to jump around too much in in this podcast i want to string this together in in a way that people can follow but you know one of the things that 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 i i talk about all the time with with my doctor is the vaccine right we haven't talked about the vaccine yet in mm -hmm. in this conversation but we'll fast forward a little bit and i you know i say to my doctor how do you personally understand the safety and efficacy of these viruses as a medical professional excuse me of the vaccine as a medical professional you're encouraging people to get vaccinated right um you are on board with the the messaging You've taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm to your patients. You're a medical professional that's been trained to think critically, to dissect information and data, to dissect and understand medical and scientific data. So what is your mechanism that you're using to ensure that the vaccine is safe and effective? And the answer that I get consistently is, well, I just believe in vaccines. Yeah, And well, that to me is, is an unacceptable answer. Yeah, it is, and it's and it's an outrageous way. And and even now, uh, uh, there's nothing I'd loathe more than these people who 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 you know lump resistance to to the COVID vaccine in with a, a general overall you know opposition to 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 all medical variolation of vaccines. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, uh, but they right. do. And by the way, you know, if, if people are fundamentally opposed to all vaccines. That's fine, but it is possible to uh, to look at this vaccine and say what I was saying from the very beginning. And by the way, I am not trained in 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 medicine. You know, it's not my area. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the pandemic broke out, I read everything I could, and I discovered some you know basic facts. I mean, one was the gradient of risk for this virus was clearly not affecting the general population. I mean, that was. Right. You know, that was very obvious. And we were told that throughout all of February. This was, it's not like people say now, but we didn't know what it was. It's nonsense. We knew. We had all the data we needed to know. We had the Diamond Princess. We had reports from China. We had everything. We knew where the gradient of risk was, was wildly disproportionately towards sort of end of life scenarios among uh, uh, the infirm. Uh, we knew this for sure, and that it wasn't uh, deadly for the general population. Uh, so there was that. So that, so, you know, there are three standards with all all meds. I mean, you you really want to know uh, not just is it safe and effective, but is it necessary? Right. So this one didn't even pass the first test. It wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. There was no reason for this. So the only possible conditions under which a vaccine would be individually protective would be for the very elderly and infirm. So I, I knew this. Uh, so when I got when I was getting calls from people saying, I just volunteered for a vaccine trial. How old are you? I'm, I'm 23. Do you have comorbidities? No, I'm as healthy as a horse. Why did you volunteer for this trial? This, why are they putting you in a vaccine trial? I mean, what are they trying to find out? I mean, that doesn't make any sense.
I mean, if you want to find out if the vaccine works, you need to you need to find out if it works against people who would face medically significant outcomes from this thing. Right. You know, well, so this it, it was always fraudulent. And the the other the second problem uh, here was that, of course, if you could invent a vaccine for every conceivable disease, you would do it. But right. there are certain things that lend themselves to uh, to being vaccinated against which we can vaccinate, and other things against which we cannot. And the and the and the and the crucial turning point uh, concerns uh, uh, the malleability of the virus itself and its tendency to mutate. Mm -hmm. So, exactly. really stable pathogens, you know, like like measles and 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 mumps and polio and things like that lend themselves to be vaccinated against because they're just one thing. But mm -hmm. coronaviruses are famously mutating viruses. I mean, mm -hmm. Fauci said on in an interview a couple of days ago that he was shocked to find that it mutated. What are you talking about? You wow. know, this, that's insane. That's that's just embarrassing, and it highlights his inept, uh, his his ineptness, and his inability to to even be in the role that he was. Oh, I he know. was in. I, mean, like, I knew um, I, I knew this virus would mutate, right. and and I tell you somebody else. The current head of the CDC, whose name is Rochelle Walensky, was in testimony mm -hmm. the other day, and they asked her how come she claimed that the that that uh, if you get the vaccine, you won't get sick and you won't spread uh, COVID, uh, when that turns out to not be true, and she said. Well, it was certainly true for wild type, but once the once the virus mutated, then it no longer remained true. So it wasn't true for alpha type. Okay, right. well, okay, this doesn't make any sense in terms of the timeline, because right. uh, because um, alpha was first detected um, just before the vaccine was ready for was even approved for general uh, for emergency use authorization for the general population before it was available a month before it was generally available mm -hmm. uh you know uh, we we knew that alpha was out so she's saying what she literally said in her testimony was that the vaccine only worked on a, on a variant that was not in circulation or at least was right. in the process of being squeezed out when the vaccine came along. So it only right. the vaccine only worked when it wasn't available. That's literally what and, she said. And up until two weeks ago was the vaccine that we were still deploying into the human population. And in some sense, yeah. in some regard, was still being mandated. Yeah. Uh, we've obviously seen a lot of victories against the mandates, but yeah, I mean, I think that every time they stand in front of a microphone, they highlight their ineptitude. Mm -hmm. And um, but the the unfortunate thing is that you and I live in this world. We do this. We keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on. We have the luxury of speaking to um, really top scientific and and medical experts. The unfortunate thing is that the general public has been um, lied to. This I always say this has been one of the biggest scams perpetrated on on the human population that I can remember. And I would, I would venture to say potentially in all of human history. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, um, it's such a crime against humanity. What has been committed, uh, people, people were lied to the medical community in part was really part of, of perpetrating this scam mm -hmm. on, on the, the human population. Right. Now there are a lot of doctors and scientists that are incredible, uh, that have sacrificed so much. Obviously, I think you and I know a lot of them, 
A lot of them write and contribute to the Brownstone Institute. Mm -hmm. But um, when you hear statements like what Fauci and Walensky are now coming back and kind of backpedaling uh, to try to cover up for what is, in my opinion, becoming blatantly obvious. It's it's almost so blatantly obvious that it's probably coming clear to the layperson that you know is just watching the news and trying to keep up with whatever recommendations that the CDC and the NIH are, are putting forth. But to your point, there's tremendous amount of inconsistencies. In, and there's in another this. there's another thing we knew early on about this virus as it relates to vaccines which is that for this type of virus, it's always been known to be true. First of all, they they mitigate against the creation of vaccines. We've never had a vaccine for the common cold or AIDS or anything else that right. mutates quickly. So uh, it was, and we've never had a vaccine for a coronavirus, like ever. So there right. was that problem. And there's specific reasons for it because it's not a stable pathogen. Uh, but we also knew <clears throat> that from long history, this isn't the Middle Ages. I mean, this is the 21st century. We knew for sure that natural immunity would definitely be more durable and more uh, comprehensive and safer than any vaccine, even if they came up with that. So we knew that for sure. And there was no well, doubt about that going into also, this. Right. And we also, you know, this is something that that, that oftentimes people... Um, I think somewhat try to circumvent in terms of the conversation. We also knew very early on that there was a medical pharmaceutical intervention in the form of hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, um, and several others that were readily available, incredibly effective, uh, easily accessible because of the, of the price point. And this was all shut down. You weren't, not only were you not allowed to get access to it, you weren't even allowed to speak about it. Mm -hmm. That's right. You were considered a, a quack. It's like a, a, almost everybody, you know, there's a movie, I don't know if you've seen it, called uh, Contagion. I have. It's, it's, it, it's a big Hollywood uh, thing. And yeah. in this Hollywood thing, uh, there's a pathogen that's released that is uh, extremely widespread in the population and also very deadly, which mm -hmm. is inconsistent with the way we know viruses to work. We know that right. the more deadly they are, the less they're going to spread. The more they spread, the less deadly they are. I mean, that's just there's a, an inherent trade-off. There's subject to certain latency considerations and other things. But So the movie is already lying to you. Uh, it's, it's pure fiction. Now, in this fictional version, uh, you get the virus and uh, and you drop dead, you know, very quickly afterwards. Right. Uh, but then you can track and trace and isolate, you know, which you can't do for a widespread pathogen, right. actually. But in the movie, they were, you know, making frantic phone calls. Oh, did you go to that bar? Oh, no. Who did you get in contact with? By the way, Laura, we're still doing this nonsense now. I came back from Mexico oh, yeah. recently and I couldn't fly into the country until I until I uh, gave them all relevant data for track and trace. So it's just, right. it's unbelievable, the mythology. But also in the movie, there was a, a what they called a blogger, you know, mm -hmm. who uh, had taken payments from some uh, medicine maker who was advertising some cure. And he was going around, you know, advertising this thing and, and the masses are going nuts, you know, raiding mm -hmm. pharmacies for the drug and that sort of thing. So it's, it was almost as if I think uh, the, the medical community or the national security community that was behind this whole thing 
had watched mm-hmm. that movie and tried to reenact it. And so for oh. them, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and uh, the other repurposed generics were nothing other than that blogger in that movie, you know, sure, marketing sure. Uh, their quack uh, cures. Sure. So they were very confused, like about everything. Yeah. And uh, well, I don't know the, if, if it's the movie's no. fault or what, but it, well, it, you know. I think it's for sure art imitating life and, yeah. or light, I should say life imitating art in this right. scenario. Um, and if you remember, there was that practice, uh, what was it in, was it in November, December, um, where you had the global community coming together, the, the medical and scientific community and the, and the security community to, to have a, uh, practice of a pandemic uh, and it just so happens that, that it was a coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, well, there was it, event 201 and there was also yeah. a crimson contagion, which mm-hmm. was uh, headed by the same guy who headed the, the COVID response. I mean, they dovetailed exactly. I mean, we know for sure that COVID was spreading in this country mm-hmm. in October, November, and December of 2019. Those mm-hmm. same months, uh, crimson contagion was ending as a tabletop mm-hmm. exercise. So one bled into the other. I mean, it was it was the most incredible thing. And there's something. There's other things that happen that are pretty creepy. One of them is uh, the sudden fashion for ventilation that happened in the early days of the pandemic. You know, there was just a uh, in the White House. They said, "Well, what should we do? Well, we should vent people." Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, where how many ventilators do we have? Well, not near enough. Well, let's make everybody, you know, so they made General Motors, you know, use the Defense Production Act to force, you know, major industrialists to make a bunch of vents. And and they, you know, shipped everybody to the hospital and anybody had COVID and, you know, with low oxygen levels, they immediately put them, you know, they started intubating them. Mm-hmm. And intubation is extremely dangerous. You know, you've got right. 70, 80, 90% of the people kicking the bucket after intubation and the, so they just outright killed uh, or, uh you know um, untold numbers of people yeah i was so so i actually have a background i used to be a preventing disease transmission instructor as well as um, emergency medical response and uh, at the very beginning of this i was baffled by the fact that we were telling people to stay in their homes, wait until they were essentially hypoxic. Then if you had to call 911, the paramedics were not administering oxygen because they were being told that it would aerosolize and spread the virus. You get them to uh, advanced medical care in a hospital setting, they're sedated, they're ventilated, and they're given remdesivir. It was it was essentially a death sentence. Yeah, and you know, I have people, and I've, I've said this openly a lot on this podcast and, and in other um, formats, and I've said, you know, people come up to me and they're very hostile and say, you know, what you're doing is is reckless and uh, you're responsible for killing people. And I said, well, hold on. Do you know anyone that's died of COVID? And they say immediately, yes, I know so many people that have died from COVID. Mm-hmm. And I correct them and explain, you actually don't know a single person that has died of COVID. And they look at me like astonished, like, what do you mean? I don't know anyone that's died of COVID. I, I, I know people that have died of COVID. And I say, what you know are people that were murdered by a government and a medical community and a uh, pharmaceutical industry that conspired together to uh, prevent people from accessing early effective care. They put together a protocol that had extremely dire outcomes, all for a virus that did not have uh, a high mortality rate 
for the human population. It's true. And even now, people have yet to come to terms with this. In the early days, people were dying all over the place from panic, uh, from mm-hmm. mistreatment at the, at the hospitals, from just sheer anxiety and emotional abuse and just sort of life meltdowns. Um, we don't actually know this, this the, the wave of death that happened to us in the spring of 2020. Um, it might not have been uh, in a COVID sense uh, more, you know, dramatically more, not dramatically more than we're dying in, in January or December. But right. the wave of death, which is, is, is uh, uh, you know, very much a matter of record, might have resulted instead from uh, mistreatment of the hospitals and uh, just civil, you know, widespread societal panic in general. I mean, it's actually one sure. of the remarkable uh, aspects of the story that mm-hmm. we're trying to document at Brownstone right now as best we can, because I, I think it really is the great scandal. Uh, and and we have to tell this history correctly, otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, it is going to be that that COVID you know arrived like a tsunami, but it it didn't right. really. It had been here for for six months. It's just that it didn't have a name yet. I I had a a friend that um, very I would say it was pretty early on in COVID, and you know every, everyone's locked down. They were considering all medical appointments outside of COVID as quote unquote elective. Mm-hmm. And, um, she ended up having a small mass on her ovary mm-hmm. and she was scheduled to go in and have a procedure. The doctors told her that th- she would have to wait until after, uh, the quote unquote pandemic was over. Right. At that point, they would, they would consider uh, doing the surgery uh, because it was considered elective. Yes. Well, she ended up speaking, going all the way to the chief of staff of that medical establishment and pushed and pushed and was able to actually get the surgery. And as a result, they found that um, her mass could have led to ovarian cancer, which obviously, you know, for anyone who knows anything about ovarian cancer, if you catch it early enough, it's it's oftentimes survivable. But the problem mm-hmm. with ovarian cancer is it's extremely difficult to catch at an early enough stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, to provide enough medical intervention. That's why you see a higher mortality rate in in ovarian cancer. My point in telling this is that how many stories are like that, that we're not hearing about? I know um, how many people were were denied medical care. And as a result, whether it's a cardiac condition that went undiagnosed and, and later downstream, they now had a major heart attack or other cardiac event, whether it was a, a, an oncology type um, situation that was ignored. I think there are countless stories mm-hmm. of people that were denied care. Uh, healthcare spending collapsed by one third in, mm-hmm. in the uh, second quarter of 2020. Uh, dentistry was almost unavailable. Mm-hmm. Uh, 300 hospitals furloughed nurses because they couldn't afford to pay them anymore. And there wasn't any mm-hmm. point to pay them because hospital occupancy fell as much as um, 50, 70, and sometimes 90%. Now, this was because an edict went out across the land uh, to reserve all hospitals for COVID patients, you know, whether there was community spread or not. And and I don't know any exceptions. I think every state uh, put out these orders. And this is actually one of the enduring mysteries. I mean, I've we've solved a lot of mysteries. Um, 
about the last three years, like for example, where the distinction between the essential and non-essential workers came from. We have that one pretty much figured out like from an agency called CISA, which is associated with the Department of Homeland Security. But where and where the the edict for uh, for the banning of elective surgeries and diagnostics and these kinds of things and normal checkups for hospitals came from, we still don't know. Well, and and their definition too of what was quote unquote elective is is mm -hmm. really remarkable. And we have someone who reached out to us at the Unity Project who's she her father needs a kidney transplant. She is a perfect match for uh, the kidney and or in terms of donating the kidney to him. And it's a very large medical institution um, in Northern California that has denied them uh, the ability to have the kidney transplant because neither her nor her father are vaccinated. And they, one of the reasons that they cited was that it was an elective surgery because he was not receiving a kidney from the main kidney transplant list. It was being donated by a family member. Mm -hmm. So they're that deeming that as quote unquote elective. Yeah, no, I mean, all the things. And the other thing is the hospitals make money from, from elective surgeries, surgeries and diagnostics and that sort of thing. I mean, just like sure. COVID wasn't paying the bills. So by the time that uh, the Medicaid systems and the federal government in general started incentivizing hospitals to find COVID and label every death as COVID, you know, with subsidies of $7,000, $10,000 per patient and more, uh, the hospitals were more than ready uh, to to take that bait because mm -hmm. they were bleeding money like crazy. Right. So they were financially so strapped, they're ready sure. to go along with any edict from anybody and to, and to take whatever money. So next thing you know, we had rampant mis misclassification. And this is not a conspiracy mm -hmm. theory. Uh, Deborah Burke said this from a, in a public microphone. She's not such a bright bulb, but she said <laughs> this at a, at a press conference that they're classifying everybody um, mm -hmm. who dies with COVID as having died from COVID. And the classification mm -hmm. of dying, uh, of having COVID was itself um, a, a result of the PCR test they were administering those times at very high suckle rates. So. So you could have not even be <clears throat> sick with COVID, uh, but have so the presence of the virus enough so a PCR uh, test to pick it up. They'd label you a COVID patient. You could be bleeding to death from having, you know, your leg cut off or or cancer mm -hmm. or somebody else, and next thing you know, you'd be a COVID death. And this was this well, was going on all over the country. So they were able to create the pandemic that they warned us mm -hmm. about. Sure. Well, and you listen to, I'm sure you've seen the the interviews with um, coroners saying that they're frustrated because they're essentially being mandated to uh, do exactly what you just said, which is list cause of death as COVID, when in reality, um, it wasn't. In fact, I mean, we, I, I'm sure you've heard the stories about people being in car accidents and dying in a car accident, but yet they tested positive for through the PCR test for COVID. So their death now becomes listed as COVID. Right. It's uh, it's it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Uh, what somebody happened? asked me on on Twitter the other day. You know, one of my many many trolls said, uh, "All right, Tucker, just be honest with us. Tell us if you think there was in fact a pandemic." And my response was, "We don't have enough information yet to say." That's correct. That is right. You know, I mean, uh, right. and the information we have is so compromised that it's really difficult to know such things as how many people have died. You know, how, how 
what is this level of severity? Even coming up with numbers concerning the infection fatality uh, rate is, and much less the case fatality rate, is uh, the numbers are so compromised that it's it's very difficult to know. I mean, it sounds crazy that in twenty in the twenty twenties we would be uh, lacking the necessary information to, to be able to tell such a a basic thing, but there's been so much dishonesty. And so well, to, to your point, how do, how do you go back and ever get a true assessment and, and understanding when, you know, you had people like AOC, I remember at one point I saw her on the news saying um, that in the state of New York, if you have a loved one that has passed away and their cause of death on their death certificate does not say COVID. She was strongly encouraging people to go back to the doctor or the medical practitioner that signed the death certificate and get it listed as COVID because then people were, were able to collect. I, I don't, don't quote me on this number. It was thousands of dollars that, that mm-hmm. the state of New York was saying that people could collect. So you're incentivizing them um, to, to misrepresent to your point um, we we knew we now had CPT codes and ICD-10 codes that were being represented as COVID when in fact they were not, and the hospitals were doing this for reimbursements uh, because, to your point, that was that was the only way that they had the ability to uh, continue operating because every other form of revenue had been shut down. I mean, if you look at if you look at the the the, the quote unquote pandemic in totality. And look at the tools that we would naturally use uh, really in any setting, whether it's uh, in an economic sense, whether it's in a medical sense, um, whether it's from a corporate sense, there are certain tools that you will use to go back and to get an understanding and and an assessment. And they're all rooted in data, Mm -hmm. right? That data is so skewed at this point it's near to impossible, like, like you said, to really understand and truly assess the magnitude of what we experienced. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing to, to imagine this, but this has to be part of the history. You can see that they're writing the, the official history now to rule out these kind of scenarios. A mm-hmm. book came out the other day called by the COVID crisis group. And the book is called something like um, The War on COVID, an assessment. Mm-hmm. And the Washington Post calls it the most authoritative answer. And I read through it. Um, the thing about about that book is it tells a very convincing story, conventional story. The mistakes were made, but but generally, you know, a very good job. Next time we need more centralization, more pandemic uh, preparedness and and more money. Uh, but the great achievement of the last few years is, of course, the vaccine. So that's the thesis. Yeah. You know? And uh, sure. Uh, and and schools are kept uh, cl- closed longer than they should have, which they're glad to acknowledge at this late date. You know, sorry, oops. Um, right. But that's the story, and and the story that you and I are telling is nowhere part of that book. But who wrote it? Well, um, <clears throat> it was written by all the people who in- invented, pl- planned, and implemented the lockdowns themselves. So. It's Rajiv Vankaya, who's you know from the Bush administration, the old Bush administration, credited with having been the inventor of, of lockdowns. So people like Carter Meacher, who scared the country into uh, closing all the all of the schools, and Richard Hatchett, and all these people from the National mm-hmm. Security Council, who who were actually the people who gave us the pandemic response, have themselves written a book, and who paid for it: uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Koch Foundation. 
So those yeah. are the two. I mean, I mean, anyone that would would con construct a lockdown is um, unhinged, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you just think about the word and you think about the concept mm -hmm. uh, goes against all everything that that's around human ethics and the human spirit, and certainly anything that goes against personal sovereignty and um, what this country was, was created on. And it, I still cannot believe that we were at a place in this country where not only were we not allowed to leave our homes uh, unless you had, you know, very specific reasons, which were mm -hmm. um, also somewhat inconsistent in, in terms of well, you can go to, you know, Target or Walmart, but you can't go down to your local store. Um, but you also weren't allowed to walk on the beach. You weren't allowed to access hiking trails. It, to me, it's just, yeah, it, they it shut is. the gyms. They shut the mm -hmm. AA meetings. They, sh they shut uh, the uh, churches. Uh, right. They, but you could they, go to a, buy marijuana. Yeah. Uh, liquor was freely available. I asked mm -hmm. a public health official in the county in which I was living at the time, why are all the liquor stores open? She said, well, there would be a revolution if people couldn't get their booze. It's like, <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting. You shut the churches, but not the liquor stores. And that shows you where, uh, what your assessment mm -hmm. of the American people is. And maybe that was right. You know, I don't know, but, yeah. but, uh, but it, it was, it was, it was the spreading of ill health. And now, you know, at the end of this, people put on anywhere between 20 and 30 pounds typically mm -hmm. you know during this period this is incredible oh. to think because you know medically significant uh, consequences of COVID are very much right. interrelated with obesity right. so they promoted wow. obesity and Ill, Ill health denied people mm -hmm. access to sunlight so they couldn't get vitamin d mm -hmm. and um well look what really, you did to our, our our adolescent population we yeah. We have never before in human history had an adolescent population that is more ill-prepared to deal with life than this generation. Yeah. And we're talking about a group of kids that have an overwhelming um, amount of depression and suicide. Yeah. We're talking about a group of kids that are, uh, the dropout rate out of school is staggering, not because... Uh, you know, they're like, you look at maybe 30, 40 years ago when kids dropped out, right. They were maybe engaging in, in, in poor life choices. We're talking about astronomic dropout rates of school, school-age children that are the, the kids that are graduating from high school are uh, not able to engage in basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. I would, I would venture to say that we, we have a generation of kids that are somewhat illiterate. Uh, I mean, the list goes goes on of what's happened to the adolescent population. And then we wonder why these kids believe that men can have babies and they can, if they want to be a unicorn, they can, you know, wake up one day and be a unicorn. It's yeah. we, we, we are totally untethered from any sense of reality, mm -hmm. coupled with the fact that we, we absolutely, you know, I always say, we did to our adolescent population what was akin to what happened to uh, POWs in Vietnam, where we put them mm -hmm. in a box and we just absolutely broke the human spirit. Mm -hmm. And and I think it was intentional. It was by design, and we're paying the, paying the price right now for it. I hope that um, people can make these connections, and that's part of our work at Brownstone is to just constantly draw the relationship between the cultural, social, political, and economic calamities 
that mm -hmm. surround us today and the pandemic response. I mean, there's a direct relationship on all, from the, each of those sectors back to the pandemic response. That was really the the great turning point. And, and I don't take it for granted that people see that because mm -hmm. one of the problems is that public discussion is largely uh, shut down. You know, uh, that's why Unity Project is, is so important. And there's there's actually not that many institutions out there right now uh, uh, that are they're talking seriously about this at all. Uh, one of the big problems is that the, the the people who acquiesced, the institutions and publications that went along with the lockdowns, don't want to talk about it now because they're embarrassed right. that they went along. Sure, sure. And and then plenty of others were for it, so they want to change the subject, and that's true with mm -hmm. both political parties and so on. So. It's up to you know people like you and me and 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 others to to tell the real to the, tell the real history here and and to do right. it every day and in every possible way because they have every intention to repeat this all over again. I mean, you could that's oh, the it's on the, it's on the horizon. Yeah. It's absolutely the Biden administration continues to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So so let's talk about the Brownstone Institute. I know. Um, uh, I think we have a good understanding now of how you got involved and what motivated mm -hmm. you. Let, let's talk about. What is the Brownstone Institute for for those people that are listening that may not know? Um, and and if you don't, I yeah. highly highly encourage you to go to the Brownstone Institute. The the, the uh, I founded it in light of the Great Barrington Declaration experience because I realized after that experience that it was first of all I, I considered that to be a great success, mm -hmm. and the reason it was a success I had to take apart because I had spent a lifetime of writing and research but hadn't really experienced a big crisis before mm -hmm. i mean 9 11 was a bit of a crisis but i remember in those days i spoke out against the militarism that followed that thing and it, and i got a lot of attention that's the key thing you learned about public affairs is that when people are listening is when you need to speak the truth you know, it doesn't do any good that you're saying a bunch of truths when nobody nobody cares mm -hmm. about the truth mm -hmm. you're saying. But you know, when the truth is most necessary, when people are are, are listening, so they were listening. Um, but the truths that were stated in that document were just plain public health truths. So it wasn't you know a consequence of m massive research or anything like that. It was just you know restating uh, basic public health principles at a time when nobody wanted to hear it, and mm -hmm. it made uh, a big difference. And the other thing I learned from that was that it wasn't very ideologically laden. It was just a, a, a straight up telling of the facts and the truth about, about mm -hmm. a field that we understand pretty well. <clears throat> and so I used that model. Uh, another thing I realized about that is the, the importance of the technology. That's a major reason for why Great Barrington Declaration was successful because we, mm -hmm. we snuck in under the radar. radar. We moved very fast, uh, got a new domain, built a very beautiful site, and invited mm -hmm. people to use it. And it all happened like in the blink of an eye. I mean, literally from conception to deployment in less than 48 hours. Right. No, so no that, doubt you surprised them. Yeah, right. I Which, surprised, your we point. surprised them. Mm -hmm. And if we yeah. had been, if we had been uh, uh raising money for it over several months mm -hmm. and talked about how it's coming, and it, they would have shut us down before we ever got going. So it was it was a, that kind of a kind of element of surprise. And then I saw that it really made a, a, a big difference. I also saw that it was so seriously and heavily attacked uh, from the center uh, by all establishment elite publications that what that did was uh, actually served as a kind of an advertising for it. Sure, right? Yeah. So it had a reverse effect. 
So uh, that taught me something else, which is that, you know, when the attacks come, um, there's no reason to panic. You can mm -hmm. just see it as uh, a, a way for you to gain uh, more, more attention and more notoriety. And if you're saying it was true, then you're going to prevail over the long term. But anyway, I used that experience and kind of parlayed that into a new, I would say like strategic outlook for how Brownstone mm -hmm. would handle uh, issues of economics and public health and foreign policy and issues of civil liberties and really the whole panoply of issues was to uh, put together a, a wide coalition of uh, that's that's uh, uh, that uh, you know didn't discriminate according to ideology, but did discriminate according to I would call it a general emancipationist agenda. So we have people from the left, mm -hmm. people from the right. I really don't care. We don't even talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we're really just looking for a general you know sort of human rights agenda, and we tackle it every single day. Well, uh, of course, when I found it, I didn't have any money um at all but uh i kind of went out on a limb and helped some people that were desperately needed help at the time i found it uh, uh, the first funding was provided by me personally and i'm not a rich guy contrary to what they say on the internet but i just did it myself just made sure. it live and then with, mm -hmm. you know then the money just gradually uh, rolled in and then I had to make a decision concerning its structure and what we would do. And what I decided was that I did not want to build one of these big nonprofit organizations that were all corrupt during COVID that shut up out of risk yeah. aversion, who they just want to go along to get along and stay mm -hmm. silent during the crisis and then go back to their business, uh, right. feeding all their, you know, their growing number of employees and, and surviving institutionally. I didn't want to be that. So right. what we did was we started this, uh, this fellows program. Which, mm -hmm. which, which is like a 12-month uh, support scholarship um, that uh, just enables scientists and uh, people with, who merit it and also mm -hmm. need it to be able to uh, continue to conduct their research and go back their lives and, and bridge themselves to their, to their next stage of their career. So uh, that was an important and is a very important part of our mission. So that's just pure charitable work. And then also... I have a long history in publishing. I've published whew, by now probably a thousand books of various institutions oh I've been at wow. and, and a variety of fields from music to economics to, to history mm -hmm. and all sorts of things. It was, it's, it was, I've never been in a, for, it, well, I was in a for-profit publisher for a while, but they didn't make a lot of profits, so it didn't last long. But mostly <laughs> I've been a nonprofit publisher and I, and I saw a need for publishing at the time. So mm -hmm. I was still on the, edge of like should i create the brownstone institute or not and it's a hard decision which as you know sure uh, mm -hmm. because if the money's not there you just don't know you know what's going to happen so i was trying right. to think about it and then paul freiger's gg foster and michael baker sent me their book called uh, the great COVID panic and they're, mm -hmm. they're from from australia and uh, the uk and it was mm -hmm. just a brilliant book and i realized this book desperately needed to be in print so that was a sign to me that i needed to go ahead and so that was my first ambition, uh, first big project with Brownstone was the publication wow. of this book. They had to trust me because they're like, mm -hmm. I said, oh, I'll accept your book for publication. And then they wrote back and said, you know, that sounds like a great idea and thank you. However, it <laughs> seems as if Brownstone has never published anything before. And I said, I'm aware of that. Um, but I personally have a lot of experience. I'm just asking you to trust me. I mean, you have no reason mm -hmm. to, yeah. but just trust me. I'll take good care of this book. And uh, after several back and forths, um, uh, they finally said, okay, whatever, get, 
let's give it a go. Well, I, I did a good job on that book and it sold uh, really tens of thousands of copies, which is a lot for a book like Great. that. Uh-huh. And uh, it did very, very well for them and for Brownstone. So, uh, mm-hmm. so now we're uh, we're about to uh, go to print with our sixth book in two years. Great. So, I mean, it's, it basically what I'm saying, Laura, is that I just I used all the experiences that I've, I've had professionally. Uh, I got rid of the things that didn't work, and I kept the things that did work. Kept whatever skills I could deploy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for Brownstone and tried to cobble together the best possible institutions I could mm-hmm. just to somehow get us through this crisis and mm-hmm. to develop a, something of an information infrastructure mm-hmm. to fight against whatever the next one is going to be. So isn't that, that interesting, right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I, I have a corporate background and it's interesting how both you and I find ourselves in this, these roles Um neither one of us being an actual medical professional, you know, it's right. an MD um, or a scientist, right. yet um, we find ourselves in these roles deploying um, specific skill sets that seem mm-hmm. to serve us well in this environment. So yeah. some of the, so who are some of the professionals that you have as, as fellows? Uh, well, currently the fellows. Um, now I have uh, senior fellows that are kind of permanent positions, but they're not, not mm-hmm. really paid positions. They're just sort of, People who write for me, like Ramesh Thakur and you know, former deputy secretary of, of the UN and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but my fellows are the people who are getting direct uh, financial help mm-hmm. and being given access to a, a, a community and mm-hmm. are brought in for various events, um, uh, uh, private retreats for for fellows and that sort of thing. So they are, and as I say, I have two criteria. One is uh, uh, merit and one is need. So you have mm-hmm. to, you know, demonstrated that you've, you've got some real uh, skills and willingness to, to, to stand up to the hegemon. And then mm-hmm. also I don't want to put on people on scholarship who otherwise have uh, great means at their disposal because it doesn't make sure. sense. Right. So, sure. um, so in this case, um, uh, I knew this great journalist named Jim's, James Bovard who writes for the New York Post all the time. He's very well mm-hmm. published. Uh, but but he lost a lot of publishing venues because of his position on COVID. So I just picked him up yeah. and said, go. Nice. And now great. he's, you know, it's just great. He's advertising himself as a Brownstone fellow, fellow and he's able to continue right. his work and do great. Julie Panezzi, who was fired from her position in, uh, I think University of Toronto or somewhere she was an mm-hmm. ethics professor and and mm-hmm. refused the vaccine so I, I picked her up she's just been a real powerhouse uh, speaker mm-hmm. and and a writer on on all right. aspects uh, the brilliant uh Aaron Curiotti who uh, uh has really been one of the one of the great voices um and one of the great intellectuals interpretive intellectuals his book mm-hmm. on biomedical security state is so wonderful and he's yeah. associated with you the unity project yeah, yeah just, he's our chief of medical ethics and he's yeah, phenomenal he's phenomenal and then uh, tom harrington who also lost his academic position mm-hmm. because of his position on the backs and it's funny because um and 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 then the, there's one a great researcher she's uh, she's out of Harvard and literature, but uh, her, her name is Debbie Lehrman. And she's done just exceptional, great research on the mm-hmm. history of all this kind of stuff. I mean, she's just a oh, mighty wow. intellect. 
And uh, she called me up and said, uh, look, I love doing this work. I feel this real calling. On the other hand, my, my husband uh, is going crazy because all I ever do is research this topic. And it would really help if I could say that I'm a Brownstone fellow, because then he would say, oh, okay, well, that's like a sort of a job. <laughs> is said, that okay, how it works? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't no, know. I'm, laughing. Her... I'm laughing because my husband probably feels the same way. He's probably, yeah, this, know, right? this, this consumes us. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, I'm a Brownstone fellow. You have to remember. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and then an, another one was... Um, uh, De De um, uh, Debbie Ann Cox, I guess, um, Robbie Ann Cox, who mm -hmm. uh, is an attorney who left private practice to sue the state of New York for their for their uh, quarantine rules. Right. But in leaving her uh, law firm, she gave up a ton of income, right, mm -hmm. to pursue this mm -hmm. case. And mm -hmm. she's not associated with any big nonprofit or anything like that. So I took her on uh, as a Brownstone fellow. And she's and, doing great work. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and so we have, a, you know, just a number of people like this and uh, a total of nine. And uh, it's, as I, say, as I say, it's only for only for 12 months. And I'm hoping mm -hmm. uh, the good thing about doing this kind of model is that, um, you know, I hope the money is is renewed uh, next mm -hmm. year and I can continue and, and, and adopt some new fellows. And I hope at some point to be able to have a public applications out there. We've got best laid plans, right? I right. plan to do this on a uh, on a calendar year, and then, but then, you know, sure enough, I've had all sorts of people come right. to me just in the last two months and say, you know, gosh, here's what happened to me, and so then I put them on. Another yeah. was a scientist from Brazil who got fired from three institutions, and that yeah. assignment, and I put him on the uh, fellowship program. So we'll see, and but if the money doesn't get here next year for next year, then I, I'll probably have to pull it back. If it expands for next year, then I'll expand the fellowship program. So sure. I'm trying to make it sort of scalable up and down, depending on the, the mm -hmm. amount of resources that are available. Right. Well, what you've done is inspiring. Um, you know, oh, thank you. I, even before I was in the role that I'm in with the Unity Project, I was following the work that, that you guys were doing. You started, I think, a little bit sooner than we did. I think you said you officially launched in August. We officially launched, I guess, in November, December timeframe. So I was aware of the work that you're doing and I continue to watch what you're doing um, and watch it grow. And of course, I feel like we've got a tremendous amount of intersection points and, it, oh, yeah. and obviously we're, we're very much in lockstep on yeah. the position of what's happened in this country. And I'm just incredibly grateful for the work. I'm incredibly grateful for you. I'm incredibly grateful for the work that you're doing uh, and, and the quality and caliber of individuals that you're bringing on. Uh, to get this messaging out. It's, it's really vital. It's, it, you know, if you don't do the work that you're doing and, and bring in people that, that you're bringing on, this country will never change. I mean, we're, we're going yeah. to continue to silently drift into um, the abyss of, you know, this, this dictatorship that I feel like mm -hmm. we're, we're under the thumb of right now in a way that I right. never would have thought. Um, in fact, as I was driving here this morning to do this podcast, I was somewhat reflecting, there was something on the radio and it was, it was um, talking about, you know, the 1970s and eighties and just kind of reflecting of, of a different time. Um, I never would have expected in my lifetime that we would be where we are. I never would have thought as a parent that I would have to be extremely concerned for my daughter's future, um, not because, you know, I'm concerned, is she making the right personal decisions, 
I'm concerned about the world that she's stepping into uh, in a way that certainly for the last half century, I don't know that parents have had to to think of, at least here in the United mm -hmm. States. Yeah. And it's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, it, it is. And, and it's always a question about how to, how to fight back. And I don't have all the answers, but the thing is, Laura, and I'm sure you feel this way too, um, to have venues out there that can help make sense of the world and point to a, a, the answers to build a better future. It serves as a source of hope that can inspire many, many people, uh, uh, just you know, intellectually, but also in a funny way, therapeutically too. Sure. So uh, I do know that that unless we speak out, unless we have some venues, unless we do whatever we can, there is not going to be any hope. That doesn't mean we can save the world. We can't, probably. Probably the world can't be saved. But we can make uh, small improvements on the margin. We can do our best and then and then just see how things unfold from, from there. And I've seen this happen. I mean, Brownstone's done uh, the research we and writing we've put out and the books we've put out have made uh, an immense difference. And and we we have it set up so that uh, you can listen to the articles, you can read them in in any one of I think fifteen languages now, you know, right. and right. and they're spread all over the world. And um, I don't know. It seems to me that's the best way to fight. The best way to fight bad ideas is with good ideas. You know, so, Doctor. Do you know Doctor Chris Martinson? You must. Uh, the name sounds right. With with, Pete, with peak prosperity. So, so Dr. Chris Martinson is doing, he's, you know, doing tremendous work similar to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I recently read an article about, you know, his, his thought on the fact that we are in this transitionary state as human civilization in particular in this country, um, that, that we most likely will not go back to what it looked like. That's right. But I, I like to believe that the work that, that organizations like the Brownstone are doing will help to guide whatever that future state looks like mm -hmm. and certainly give us a soft landing mm -hmm. um, as yeah, that right. starts to uh, take Laura, shape. I think it's right. Uh, and people do need to realize this, that we have lived through over the last three years uh, a global calamity of mm -hmm. without without precedent. I mean, it compares, I would say, most directly to World War One, uh, and the the amount of of political upheaval that that happened, the cultural and social upheaval. It was the first total war in history in the sense it involved uh, all civilized nations and the entire civilian populations, and people were fundamentally traumatized. We lost so many uh, lives from that, but mostly we lost a sense of hope and a sense of progress. Mm -hmm. and unleashed a, a kind of a new beast on the world of this planning mm -hmm. state, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but things never went back to the mm -hmm. way they were in the 1890s, to, uh, much less in the 1870s. Um, right. In some ways, society and civilization and peace and freedom were fundamentally damaged um, from World War One, And yet... Um, so I think it's important that we think of it that way. And the danger of that kind of situation where we see from, from history is that people have a remarkable capacity to forget right. what life was like before the war, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they lose their ideals and they right. adjust to the new horrible, 
you know, whatever mm-hmm. that happens that be, right. whatever that happens to be. And we just can't let that happen. And there were efforts right. after World War One to go back and look at what happened to try to achieve some justice, to mm-hmm. try to ferret out, you know, the the the, the merchants of death and, and hold people to account for what they did with the world. But that was quickly shut down. Um, I just don't want to be shut down uh, because right. we 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 don't need to adapt to the new normal. Uh, mm-hmm. We we need to recapture, regain uh, the freedoms we've lost, and then mm-hmm. rebuild the world in a way that would make it impossible for anything like this to happen, so mm-hmm. that uh, we can just work towards a, a new renaissance. Uh, and that's right. that's my that's my that's my that's the goal of Brownstone. Really, is to inspire mm-hmm. this. We're nowhere near. Uh, that point we're still in the state of trauma and denial i would say Mm -hmm. as a culture and as societies around the world about what happened to us so it's an everyday struggle uh, Mm -hmm. to over the narrative over the story over the lessons and and a struggle for the future right well i i couldn't agree with you more and i'm grateful that brownstone and, and you jeffrey tucker are one of the guideposts for what the future state i think will look like uh, and thank God for that, because without organizations and people like you and, and your fellows, uh, the future, I think, would look terrifying and devastating. But I do think we will come out on the other end of this with um, a different type of existence, but one that uh, is is not as daunting, maybe, as what we're experiencing right now. Yeah, so, I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Um, we there's there's we we have to fight for it every day and i know it's exhausting for you uh for what you do and i there are times that i wonder you know why am i doing this Uh, i'm not a paid employee by brownstone by the way you know i don't get paid by brownstone so uh i do sometimes what am i doing but um right but the satisfaction yeah the satisfaction comes in knowing well you know hearing you say things like that you know that's very very kind thank you and uh just knowing that you were we're doing what we can you know and i've got a new appreciation for you know we've been building what we call civilization for the better part of a thousand years a lot of people mm-hmm. have made a lot of sacrifices uh to make to make our our good lives possible we mm-hmm. owe it to the next generation to do whatever right. we can to make their good lives possible that's right that's right. I, and I look at the uh, next generation on a daily basis in my children. And uh, obviously I think every parent, certainly parents that are listening to this agree with me that, you know, that, that is one of the biggest motivating factors is to yeah. hand off whatever that future state is going to look like uh, to make it something that is uh, worthy of, of the next generation and worthy of the work and the fight that we're in right now. So thank you for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Uh, we're going to put in the podcast, a link to the Brownstone. So people okay. will be able to easily, easily access the work that you're doing. Good. And I highly, highly encourage that. I've said it a few times throughout the podcast. If you don't know the Brownstone, go and, and look this information up. I encourage you to follow the work that Jeffrey and his fellows are doing. Um, it will, I think, help to chart the course for what we will experience in the future. So thank you again. I appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure visiting with you and I enjoy working with you, Laura. Thank you. Absolutely. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. 
We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.